Welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast, a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance. We interview leading scholars from a diverse array of backgrounds and ideologies about the principles that underlie free speech in academia. Now here's the host of today's episode, Keith Whittington. Thank you for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast for the latest installment in our regular series of conversations hosted by the Academic Freedom Alliance on issues of campus free speech and academic freedom. I am Keith Whittington, the William Nelson Cromwell Professor of Politics at Princeton University and the chair of the Academic Committee of the Academic Freedom Alliance. The Academic Freedom Alliance is a group of professors from across the ideological spectrum organized to defend the principles of academic freedom in American universities and to assist individual professors whose rights of free speech are under threat. You can find out more about the organization and its mission by visiting our website at academicfreedom.org. Today, I am pleased to be joined by two colleagues from a sister organization concerned with the fight for free speech on college campuses, FIRE, the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. As many of you will know, FIRE was founded over two decades ago to advance free speech, religious liberty, and due process on college campuses, helping both students and professors who find themselves under threat from illiberal university policies. They do a wide range of work, including public advocacy and the creation of reports on campus climate and the state of free speech on college campuses. Uh, They just released their annual college free speech rankings, which surveys students at over 150 colleges on their views about free speech. And they just recently released a brand new report um, along with a new database um, called Scholars Under Fire. That report draws from several sources to put together a large list of professors who have been targeted for their speech in recent years and gives us a broader perspective on these controversies that is often missing from the public discussions of individual cases. I'm pleased to be joined by the two authors of the Scholars Under Fire report, Sean Stevens and Comey German. Sean is a senior research fellow at FIRE and did his doctoral work in social psychology at Rutgers University. He was previously director of research at Heterodox Academy. Comey is a research fellow at FIRE and did her doctoral work in social psychology at the University of California at Riverside. Sean Comey, welcome to the Academic Freedom Podcast. Thanks. Thank you for having us. Um, I wanted to start with the uh, college free speech rankings, talk about that a little bit, although that's much more focused on um, students and free speech issues than the academic freedom issues that the Scholars Under Fire report focuses on. Um, Sean, you're particularly involved in putting together um, the free speech rankings, and I was wondering if I could start just by um, uh, briefly with that and um, before turning to the main topic and, and just ask you, can you describe uh, what the rankings do and how it's put together? Yeah, so you know, last year we, we surveyed uh, 55 colleges um, and you know, we came up with a ranking for schools based on a series of components. Um, they get a score on openness uh, to express their ideas, um, tolerance, for controversial speakers, a couple of metrics on that, one for liberal speakers, one for conservative ones, um, acceptability of uh, disruptive conduct, which is like protest behavior, like show, shout downs, blocking entry, um, saying it would be okay for some students to use violence to stop a speech. Uh, we ask about how clear the administration makes it that they support free speech and how likely it is that they, w- that they would uh, defend a speaker in the face of a controversy. And the final component is uh, comfort expressing ideas uh, in various settings across campus. So we ask about the classroom setting. We ask about uh, in public places in general, like the dining hall. uh, And we ask about expressing your ideas on social media. Uh, So this year, we expanded that to include 159 schools 
would have been nice if it was like a round number, I guess, <laughs> but, you know, uh, the, the target was 150 and then there was interest in surveying additional schools. So, so from, from individuals, uh, and, and, and people. So we, we added them basically. <laughs> but, uh, so what the rankings attempt to do is they are taking basically what the students tell us, uh, about their experience on the campus and as well as, you know, measures of their tolerance and, and support for, for certain types of protest behavior. Uh, it, it's entirely based on these student responses. And we basically calculate an overall score um, that can range from zero to hundred. You know, I'll say in, in reality, I guess, technically the score could in theory range from negative six to 106, but I think that's basically <laughs> impossible. You'd either have to get a perfect score or a zero to get, one of those two scores. So I really don't think the, that that's possible. So we basically treat it as it's a zero to a hundred scale. Um, you know, the best performing schools in our, in our metric, I I think still have room for improvement. Um, but you know, the best performing schools, uh, this year were Claremont McKenna, university of Chicago, university of New Hampshire, Emory, Florida state as a top five, um, you know, I say jet, all of the schools in our top 25, um, you know, have a green light uh, spotlight rating from fire for their speech codes. So I think that has a lot to do with it. Um, their administration, in, in many cases, the administration's made it very clear uh, where they stand on free speech and that, that they support it. Uh, you have other schools outside of Claremont McKenna and New Chicago in the top 25 or, or Purdue. Um, Texas A&M and some other places where the administration has been a, a kind of strong supporter. Um, and another another thing, this isn't in our report. This I actually um, I've been playing around a little with the data uh, the past past few weeks, you know, in anticipation for the report coming out and, and some follow up pieces. And I, I found this kind of interesting little nugget that at our top 25 schools, most of them are actually pretty ideologically diverse. Uh, actually, the ones that the one the, the two that are least ideologically diverse are Claremont McKenna and New Chicago. Um, the rest are are actually score pretty well on on our measure of ideological diversity. We do it's not a part of the rankings, but we have a, a way of capturing it. Um, and what was interesting about this to me was like basically just a scatterplot of of ideological diversity and overall score. And what you could see was for schools that had uh, vague speech policies or even punitive ones. So the yellow and red white schools, the ideological, they, they were, there were some that were ideological diverse, some that weren't, it was basically they were all over the place. Uh, when it came to these green white schools, most of them clustered in this like upper quadrant with the exception of the two I mentioned. And so that to me is suggesting that the administration plays a big role there, um, both with this, the, the policies they set and um, the messages they, they, they convey to the students. Um, and that, that allows them to kind of leverage that ideological diversity. Um, it, it would have seen more kind of, if, if it didn't matter so much, if the administrative response didn't matter so much, you would have seen that same pattern with the, the green light schools in terms of where they fell on the metrics. So I think that was a, that's an interesting finding. Um, and I guess the other main point I would make is a, a lot of the really good performing schools are, are kind of larger public state universities. I think there's probably multiple reasons for that, um, but but one real good candidate would be these schools simply just have larger student bodies. It's, it's probably easier for students to find um, a pocket where they feel comfortable expressing themselves, at least around some people. Um, 
But overall, I'd say, yeah, I think even the best schools still have a lot of work to do. And then clearly the ones that are more towards the bottom, we would say they have a lot of work to do um, to improve. Um, and, you know, we, we hope to do this again next year. We'd like to expand it uh, to include even more schools. So we're getting a better pulse of, of things. Um, and, you know, the other thing I would just conclude with is the best way to actually compute a ranking like this for a school would be if we could also survey faculty, but that's a much trickier uh, population to get, I think. So uh, we're working on that, but I don't know if we'll be able to kind of kind of toss it in the mix. <laughs> yeah, which I, I guess does lead to a point which I should um, uh, ask about directly is, is how the students are recruited into the survey. You do get a pretty sizable sample of students in each university. And so it's not as if uh, the ranking, the, the numbers for a particular university are being generated by just a handful of students. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're talking more like uh, 250 students, I think is pretty common uh, yeah. for how many students at each one of these schools. So how did they get pulled into the survey in the first place? Yeah, Who so are these people? Yeah, so we, we actually set 250 as our, our kind of desired threshold, you know, and at some schools that will be a considerable amount of the student body and at, at other schools, it's, you know, not an insane percentage, but it's it's sufficient for what we're trying to do. Uh, we, we also wait, um, we have a wait for the data nationally, and we also have school weights for each individual school based on the data they submit to National Center for Education Statistics. Uh, our polling partner, College Pulse, uh, largely takes care of computing the weights. Um, the way I have come to describe them, you know, we've worked with them for quite a few years now, and the way I've come to describe them is they're like a, a YouGov or Qualtrics type outlet, but specifically focused on college campuses, mostly on students. Their panel is almost all students. They're starting to build like a faculty one. Um, so you know, typical recruitment methods that are used by places like YouGov, Qualtrics is, is how College Pulse is going after it, um, going after the students. And, you know, they, I think what is unique about what College Pulse offers that other places maybe are starting to be able to, but, but haven't in the past is we actually do like as clearly because we're giving a ranking to each individual school, we, we know where the, which school, which responses go with which school. Whereas in most of the other like large scale surveys we've seen of college student free speech attitudes, many of which are, are impressive and, and have really valuable data, it, but it's a, they're national samples. Yeah. And, and you don't know, oh, well, what about the people at Harvard? And what about the people at, you know, Indiana University? Like what, what do they think there? And, and that's the strength of our, our survey partner, what, what College Pulse really offers is that we can do that. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the eye-popping findings uh, from the student survey comes in response to the questions of acceptable ways of protesting a campus speaker, um, as the survey question frames it. Um, the survey allows four responses, uh, ranging from uh, uh, almost uh, always acceptable to never acceptable, and then gives various um, uh, ways of protesting as, as options and ask students to um, categorize someone each. Uh, only a third say that it's never acceptable to shout down a speaker um, or otherwise prevent them from speaking. Um, and uh, I, only, I'm not sure there's I'll be a question mark on only, only uh, three quarters um, say that it's never acceptable to use violence uh, to uh, stop a campus speech, um, uh, which is to say a quarter they get it sometimes acceptable um maybe always acceptable and although a very small number actually choose that option uh to use violence uh, against uh, uh to stop a campus speech uh, were you surprised by those findings so i mean yes yes and no i mean i find them concerning and and 
Yeah, to be fair, it was like one percent said always acceptable and five percent said sometimes. Most of this this uh, roughly twenty, most of this rough quarter, I mean, it's like twenty three percent or whatever. It they they are saying rarely, but they're still saying rarely, and I find that concerning. Um, and I, the reason I don't necessarily find it that surprising is we found this figure to be eighteen percent last year. I've seen other data points which put it around 20 in, 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 you know, the question might not be asked exactly the same way. Right. Um, but, but I, I, there's been other data points that have also suggested it. So I wasn't necessarily surprised at, at the percentage. I mean, the increase I find troubling, I find the, even if you're saying rarely acceptable, I do think that that, that still is a problem. Um, there's, I don't want to go too far afield, but uh, one of the main reason I think that's a problem is in research on terrorism and, and radicalization there's this theory known as the pyramid of radicalization and the, the tip of the pyramid, the people who will actually be violent and, and are radicalized is a small amount of people. But then right below it is the base of intellectual supporters, which effectively provide rationalizations and, and cover for the use of, of violence. Um, so, yeah, I do. I think that all of these students who are saying it's acceptable to some degree would actually engage in the violence themselves. No, they probably wouldn't. They're saying it's okay. If, but they are saying it's okay. If somebody else does it. Yeah. 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 It's, it's cheating to say you're not surprised because you know what this literature looks like. I mean, one thing, of course, in, in media reports is people are often surprised when they see these things for the first time. But as you say, uh, unfortunately, these are fairly consistent with findings that we've seen from other work, including other work you've done, but other kinds of surveys um, as well. Um, uh, so uh, it's reassuring in the sense of doing the survey that, that it's um, uh, consistent with what we um, have seen from other uh, kinds of measures. Mm -hmm. um, a, a little disconcerting about what the numbers actually look like, um, yeah, I think, given what we might uh, what we might hope. Um, there's also some striking findings to the answer to the question of whether a speaker expressing uh, various kinds of views um, ought to be even allowed uh, to speak on a college campus. Um, I appreciate that the polls are really uh, bolded the allowed part in order to try to emphasize to them uh, students answering the question. It's not just a matter of um, uh, would it be a good idea if a speaker came? Would you agree with a speaker who came to express these views? Um, but should they even be allowed to um, enter the campus to make a talk on this um, topic. Uh, nearly half of the student surveys say that a speaker shouldn't be allowed on campus to argue that abortion should be completely illegal. Um, a quarter would not allow a speaker to call for the abolition of police. Um, over a third would not allow a speaker to argue that looting is a justifiable form of protest um, mm -hmm. or that pandemic lockdown orders infringe on personal liberties. Um, none of that strikes me as particularly encouraging a sign uh, for the yeah. tolerance of dissenting ideas on campus, either from the left or the right. And, and of course, that's one interesting feature of this is um, you get a lot of um, reaction of students saying both positions we might think of as left wing positions and positions we might think of as right wing positions. Uh, we, we don't want to hear from people who are, who are out there making policy arguments. Yeah, uh, and I can uh, just one little nugget on that. I was actually looking into it a little bit yesterday. Um, you know, so in the survey report and 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 stuff, we report the percentages of, of people that do that. But you know, in in um political psych, political science, social psych research, you're gonna like create a composite score for tolerance, and you're gonna look at this. Sure. Um. And so when I did this, I made a tolerance score for all speakers, so all eight, and then we did tolerance for liberals and tolerance for conservative speakers, and then just looked at it by the seven different ideological categories. 
And oh, it was pretty depressing, like to see. <laughs> uh, so it's a four point scale. So as we go up one to four, the way I had it coded, four was more intolerance. So it's basically anything above two, and any any average above two is indicative of intolerance. Uh, the only instances where the average was not above two was when very liberal students were assessing the liberal speakers. <laughs> Right. And very conservative students were assessing the conservative speakers. So like what is kind of wild to me there is those are the ends. So the somewhat liberals, the slightly liberals, even they were opposed on average with this average to the right. liberal speakers. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and right. vice versa with, with the conservative students. And so it's like to me, I'm like, there's just a problem across the board here of tolerance for controversial speakers. I mean, yeah, those speakers are meant to be offensive. We're trying to measure tolerance, but I mean, that's to me is a, that's a, that is a shift um, from prior literature in the past right. where, where, where college students tended to be um, maybe not 100% tolerant of, of controversial speakers, but they, the, the tendency was that they were always more tolerant than like the general public. And I think that's something that we're starting to see shift. And that's kind of a new thing in the data that's um, interesting to say the least, if, if you're, if you're like immersed in, in this literature. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see how this plays out over time as you continue to do the surveys. Cause as you say, this is, um, uh, a striking data point at this moment in time and hard to quite know how to square this with um, what were attitudes five years ago, 20 years ago, um, et cetera. It'll be interesting to see if uh, we really do, um, are really crossing a line here where the incoming generation of college students just are increasingly much less tolerant than, than we thought um, some earlier generations were. One thing I like about our, not like about that finding, but find interesting about it and is consistent with what we uh, are about to talk about, which is the College Under Fire Report, um, as well is the extent to which this isn't a problem for just one side of the political spectrum. Um, I think a lot of times people who are a little more distant to these campus free speech controversies imagine uh, this is just a right wing problem or this is just a left wing problem. Um, and, and it's really just not. It's, it's, a, it's a problem for everybody across the board. Um, uh, and, and that certainly comes out in that particular set of responses where it's um, uh, you're getting speakers on both the left and the right that students are saying, large numbers of students are saying, uh, shouldn't let somebody like that come to our campus. So to switch gears some to the Scholars Under Fire report um, then that y'all um, both uh, work for, this is a new initiative um, uh, for FIRE. Um, uh, the college free speech rankings, as you say, sort of expanded the data quite a bit and um, is, a, is larger than what y'all have done in the past, but you've done something like it in the past. This is um, something new. So can you... Um, Tell me something about how that came about and, and why you wanted to put this report together and, and put together this particular uh, data set. Um, Comey, you want to start with this one? Since we've been uh, focused on the on the project you had less involvement with. I was going to say, I've been talking for like 10 minutes, so we should start with Comey. <laughs> well, to be fair, um, you know, Sean was already thinking about this project before I even began in February, so he'll be able to speak to you know, the very initial idea behind it. Um, what I can say from my experience has been that, um, you know, what we really wanted to do was expand the details um, beyond basic things you can know about when a scholar's um, targeted. We wanted to really understand um, the nuance, the things like what they were talking about, um, who they were talking about, who they're talking to, and what context did they express these ideas? Um, what was the intent behind what they were saying or doing? What was the political motive behind those who were trying to 
to penalize him or her? Um, were there petitions supporting or opposing the person? You know, what, what did the, um, those calling for sanctions specifically demand? Um, how did the scholar and the administration respond to these demands? And ultimately what happened as a result of this whole ordeal? And I think these nuanced sort of details really are what bring this database to life and really are what make this such a valuable resource. Um, so often when we're discussing, um, you know, just findings, we discuss the stats, the, 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 the numbers that are important because they're illuminating um, of broad trends and warning signs, um, but they don't really humanize the data. Mm. I think that's one thing that's really cool about the database is that for each incident, you can learn so much. And even, for, even in addition to everything we provide, we also welcome people to reach their own conclusions by reading the you know, exact content of what the professor said or did um, and reading all the various news stories covering it. So we really do want people to just have all the information at their, um, you know, at their fingertips and be able to reach your own decisions and understand the, the uniqueness of each incident. So there are 426, that's a ton. We can look at all the things, all the characteristics across them. Um, but you know, one thing that I kind of joined FIRE um, to first work on was really um, adding all these um, details from a, from a qualitative perspective. And, and so it complements the more quantitative aspect of, of, the, of the report, which I think is really exciting that we can offer both um, and we'll continue to do so. We'll have probably an annual report, um, but you know, every month or so we will be updating the, the database. And we also are planning to expand it significantly by including students, mm -hmm. um, including st uh, like students under fire and student organ organizations that have been targeted. Um, so this is really just the beginning of, I think, a really important um, you know, multi-tier project. And we're hoping to you know, bring on more people in fire and devote a lot of attention to this and understanding it from multiple angles. One of the really nice things about the uh, database and the report is, as you say, sort of bringing together qualitative and quantitative information about this. Often when we focus on these campus free speech controversies, uh, we're sort of thinking about them sort of one case at a time and all the details of particular cases. And it's uh, nice to be able to abstract out of that a little bit and sort of think about a much broader set of cases and, and still be able to have the kind of nuance and detail across those range of cases that we, can, we don't lose track of the um, uh, qualitative dimensions of what's, what's going on there. Um, the database runs from 2015 to the present um, at the moment. And as you note, you'll be updating it um, over time to so continue to add uh, cases as they um, arise. Um, can you tell me something about the uh, data that went into the report? Sure, so in terms of how we gathered the data, um, this was one um, strength as well as a limitation depending on how you look at it, because you know we're really interested in attempts that were public. So kind of almost like some people would call it like a, a, a cancellation attempt. Mm -hmm. We want to rally people together, get the collective involved to, to enforce um, or to, to make your demands heard and met. Um, and so we relied on publicly available information, news stories, things like that. Um, and that was our primary source of information. So it's good that we were able to, to really focus on this problem of the public attempts to sanction. Um, but we also recognize that that method of obtaining data um, is limited because there are a lot of, um, you know, more 
under the radar incidents that we believe have happened, um, investigations that universities have obviously often an incentive to keep on the down low and to um, prevent from reaching public eyes, reaching the, the media. Um, and so I think um, going forward, it would be important for us to consider a lot of different routes for obtaining mm -hmm. even, pu even publicly available information that just hasn't been widely publicized. Yeah, it's important part, part you'll use some pre-existing data sets that people have put together with um, some of these uh, public reports of uh, attacks on uh, faculty included in that. Um, uh, but it does raise questions about sort of how comprehensive uh, do you think the data set is of sort of the universe of uh, what y'all characterize as targeting incidents um, against faculty. They're out there. Um, Y'all did not, for example, make use of FIRE's own internal records about professors. The organization itself is defended. Um, and some of those defenses are, of course, public as well and might well have been also included um, in these other data sets because they get media coverage and the like. Um, I know also FIRE, like the Academic Freedom Alliance, winds up helping a lot of faculty um, without any public attention who have the cases have not attracted any public attention and they prefer that they not attract public attention. Yeah. Um, and so uh, we know that there's a, um, a lot of things underwater on this. And so yeah. are we are we dealing with the tip of the iceberg or um, are we actually seeing a, a pretty sizable chunk, do you think, of the overall picture? Our, I think our impression is it's it's probably closer to just the tip of the iceberg. Um, on the fire cases specifically, we made that we made the decision to not um, include the ones that were in public for like basically what you exactly said. It's like we would have to contact them and see if they were okay with it, and we wanted to really just kind of it's a living database. So right. we made the decision where it was like, we just need to put this out mm -hmm. so we can get other people to help us build it. Like, right. you know, but we know there are other cases that we're not including. So if we can just get this out, people will start submitting things to us right. and then we can, we can add it and we can build it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think both of us think it's, this is, it's likely the tip of the iceberg. We think there's we probably have missed a number of, of incidents, right? Uh, I would say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and notably, of course, even a lot of incidents that go public are only locally public, right? People on the campus might know, maybe it gets coverage in the student newspaper on campus, um, but doesn't break into any kind of larger coverage that might come to the attention, even if people were paying attention to these things. And so uh, don't wind up in some of these databases, for example. That, that is one uh, strength of, of kind of the team we have at FIRE. Yeah. Uh, so to, to back up a little, because you did ask about like the, the genesis or the yeah. creation of the project. And so Comey said, you know, well, it was already in motion before she started. So basically what was uh, going on was I was at the time, um, why I was aware of those lists that uh, Jeff Sachs and, and Lee Jossum had put together. Mm -hmm. um, and I was like slowly working on integrating them because I was like, oh yeah, we should totally do this as a thing. Right. And it was just kind of a back burner project where I was like, when I had some time, I would look up the people on their lists and start entering them into a spreadsheet basically. Mm -hmm. uh, and then, you know, so and then the strength of with the local news things, we actually wind up getting a lot of those local news stories uh, because uh, the comms team at Fire, we have this yeah. whole thing in our email called the Fire News Desk, yeah. and basically it's like any story involving campus free speech that they can find to get sent around to the entire staff. Mm -hmm. And so we wind up getting a lot of these these local stories. Uh, that is also basically why we then decided to go forward with this project 
uh, because um, in the aftermath of George Floyd, I noticed yeah. a severe uptick in news desk articles about targeting professors. Right. And it was just kind of like they just kept they were coming in like multiple times a day. And I was like, I couldn't even it was it was like I couldn't even keep up. So I was just yeah. adding names to a list. Right. And like putting the title of the email thread in. And it's like, well, we'll go back and deal with this later. And that's where kind of Comey comes in with her strengths at qualitative research. Right. Um, and, and she really built she really built the database out and, and made it as rich as, as it is. Um, but that's that was the genesis of the project. And then it just became so apparent last summer, you know, 2020. Right. Right. That, that this is something we, we, we need to track this. We need to get this, these data out. Um, and one of the hypotheses I had proposed and I was writing this paper on scholarship suppression. Yeah. Uh, with Lee Jussum, we were co-authoring this and it was it was like a theoretical paper, but we we basically presented the hypothesis that we think these are increasingly coming from within the academy itself. Yeah. So this database is is one way of testing that hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, right. Um, yeah, which is interesting. I mean, so this idea of, of scholarship suppression and, and Comey mentioned uh, cancel culture is another sort of similar kind of term floating around the that uh, covers these kinds of incidents, which raises lots of questions about how to operationalize uh, what counts as uh, a targeting incident or a mm-hmm. uh, scholar under fire uh, for these purposes. Some choices have to be made about what counts and what doesn't count. Um, so say something about um, for y'all, sort of what counts as a scholar? So who, who uh, what kind of person could make it into the database um, and what counts as a targeting incident uh, for your purposes? Sure, um, well, so we chose the term. And so for, for each of these, seemingly minor um, labels, we, we have multiple discussions. Many meetings yeah. behind this, right? <laughs> exactly. So we chose um, the term scholar, for example, rather than faculty or professor um, or academic even, because um, we wanted to include a range of people who basically, um, you know, are, are formally affiliated with universities who, who teach and or research um, in, you know, in the university setting or affiliated with the university. So that's why we also include um, you know, research fellows at places like um, Stanford's Hoover, mm-hmm. for example. Um, people who contribute to a scholarly, you know, peer review scientific journal p- process. Um, you know, so some of these people are, are not officially like assistant professors or beyond, but are instead research associates, research fellows. Um, adjunct instructors, things like that. And so we want to include the range of both instructors and researchers that um, contribute to the overall higher education dynamic. Mm-hmm. That allowed us to include, right, like for instance, graduate students as well, who yes. I think clearly are, they're contributing to peer reviewed work and the academic right. world, but they're not professors. But right. they, we do have a handful of graduate students in this database that they, and who were targeted. And you know, you teach courses in graduate yep. school. You're you're doing your own research. You're effectively a, a junior level, starter level academic. Right. Um, right. So, so the the decision was made to use the yeah, as Comey said, the term scholar is we felt just more encompassing. It would be inaccurate to call it the faculty database because there are people who are not 
actual faculty members in there. So scholar, we know is just the right term. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I think that that's the right net to cast. It's it's how the Academic Freedom Alliance likewise has tried to think about sort of who we're trying to cover. It's because they're all um, in this uh, broader instructional and research uh, scholar category at um, at universities. Um, um, and and you all's data set is limited to the United States. Um, also, or does it include people from Canada and other countries as well? We, we limited it to the to the U.S. because yeah. that's, I mean, fires focused on the U.S. Sure. and like the disinvitation database is limited to the U.S. Right. Um, so we did limit it to just the United States. I mean, we're, we're, there's plenty of incidents in Canada. Like no, 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 there are many incidents. Plenty of those, um, but yeah, they just are. They're outside the purview of, of the database right now. Um, you know, that could change, I guess, at some points, but. Uh, very fair. A whole, a whole different set of challenges. But I just want to be clear on sort of what the boundaries yeah. um, are here. But um, but yeah, as you know, it's a, uh, unfortunately this is an international uh, problem, not a uh, not just a local problem in the in the United States. And um, uh, and in some ways, we have a lot better data on on what it looks like in the United States because of projects like this where we just don't have as as good of a handle um, on what the situation is in Europe or Canada and, and other places where uh, it has not been systematically studied in the same kind of way. Um, so tell me something about the uh, uh, many meetings that went into what counts as a targeting incident. Um, uh, what what gets you uh, listed as being under fire? <laughs> yeah, so that, that was the other component, which maybe was more important to discuss and agree upon than the definition yeah. of scholar or definition of that term. Um, we decided to limit inclusion to scholars who were targeted for ideological reasons. And this is on the ideological because, you know, sometimes people think not only for this database, but just in terms of fire's work, that we just believe scholars can do whatever they want because that's what academic freedom and free speech are all about. Um, and so for this project, we really wanted to focus on, you know, the more of the ideological to political component. And um, so we didn't include incidents that involved people, you know, who were engaged in, you know, felony crimes or who were, who were convicted of, um, you know, sexual harassment, um, things like that, that really are either, you know, often not protected by um, academic freedom and, and also sometimes not even protected by free speech. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we really, and it's not to say that we, like FIRE wouldn't, um, as a legal matter, protect the right of some scholars that we exclude from the database. It's just that we chose for this purpose um, to focus on scholars who, because of their expression in various contexts, including their scholarship, their teaching, social media, op-eds, blogs, public comments, um, were targeted because basically their views struck an ideological nerve. Right. And so, you know, even in the case of something like a Brett Kavanaugh, who mm -hmm. people were very opposed to, um, oftentimes on grounds of the, um, the sexual harassment allegations, um, we, we included him because there were explicit sanction attempts surrounding his political views, his, his legal approach, um, and the influence that he may, might have through his teaching and his values on students. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll just add the, I mean, it, I think it's clear, but you know, from our discussion and, and I think from the coverage that the report's gotten, but I mean, yeah. the one key thing is it had to be like, we had to publicly be able to document right. the, the sanction attempt, whether it's, and that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be a petition 
Like there are plenty of instances where there was not a petition, but we you can still find like a list of demands or you can just still find public outcry in, right. the, in the sense of op-eds or a series of tweets where people are calling on the university to punish mm-hmm. this person. And so to be clear then, the, the, what counts as a uh, sanction threat from that perspective is, is suffi- it is sufficient for somebody to be calling for a sanction, yeah. uh, not necessarily the case the university takes that seriously, for example, and yeah. actually pursues it. It's enough, it's enough that there's a student petition, it's enough that yeah. somebody files a complaint, it's enough that there's an op-ed um, calling for somebody to be fired and, and the like. Yeah, and then, I mean, we have plenty of instances in the database where it, it's the, the administration stood up for the scholar, uh, you know, like, so for instance, I mean, she's not in there yet, but uh, when we make our first update, um, the professor Jen Jordan from Syracuse is going to be in there uh, and it's going to be coded as, you know, the administration defended her. Right. Right. Um, um, I guess related to that though, is that there are these um, uh, complicated cases in which um, uh, there might be uh, speech-related concerns that uh, generate the controversy or are part of the controversy, but then eventually uh, the faculty member winds up entangled in harassment charges or something unrelated, plagiarism charges wind up arising around that faculty member, and they may even be sanctioned for um, that. So we think of sort of the uh, case of Ward Churchill, for example, after 9-11, in which um, uh, he initially um, uh, gets in hot water for things he said about 9-11. There's lots of calls for him to be fired as a consequence of that, but then the university winds up uh, launching an investigation of his scholarly work and, and uh, lodges um, claims of research misconduct and, and uh, plagiarism toward him. So how do you all think about and sort through cases like that where it seems to be um, a very mixed bag of some things that are sort of outside the speech context and maybe that's even the thing the university ultimately acts on, um, but then there are also elements of the larger controversy that um, do seem to revolve around the speech. Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, because there are, I think sometimes, um, uh, or yeah, in a number of incidents, we realized that sometimes scholars who have controversial views in one domain are controversial in a lot of other domains. Um, and there's sort of a conflation of all these things, oftentimes like in petitions where this person's just described as a bad person for tons of different reasons. Some reasons maybe are for you know doing illegal things and some mm-hmm. aren't or, or for violating their professional um, you know, duties or ab- abdicating them. Um, so it's very difficult to tease apart. And so, um, you know, we treat that sort of issue on a case-by-case basis and try to determine whether the overriding factor that contributed to the um, sanction attempt and or mm-hmm. sanction outcome were the ideology as opposed to were the, say, legitimately unprofessional conduct and or illegal conduct. And, and so, you know, if they were, um, you know, convicted of something, found, found actually guilty and, and terminated on the basis of something that's a more legitimate reason that maybe not protected by academic freedom or even free speech, um, then we, we do consider and, and sometimes do remove that scholar. Mm-hmm. Um, there are ca- other cases where it seems that allegations, though never confirmed, were grounds to, terminate or otherwise penalize a scholar who was primarily controversial for ideological reasons. 
in which case it seemed like people were trying to pile on other mm. accusations that they thought might stick better than the ideological concerns. I think there's the, like when that happens, it's it's an example of I and mean, we have there's plenty, I think, of examples, as Comey's mentioned. It's it's like they throw the kitchen sink at yeah. this professor because it's like the professor has been annoying people for a while. <laughs> right. And so like this one incident is like the thing that pushed it over over the edge and then they right. bring back all of that you know it's it's dig up all anything you can and hope that it sticks right. effectively is, right. is what you see um and on some of these i'll add that uh on these really complicated cases what is a godsend for us is fire is a legal organization so if yeah. we can't really figure it out it's like calling the lawyers and right. like see what they think <laughs> Yeah. Is, is this a legitimate case or did this person actually, is this professional incompetence? Did this right. person do something that was grounds for termination? Like neither one of us are attorneys. So we right. don't necessarily, when it's, when it's a really close judgment call, it's like, that's when we would bring in, you know, people who have more knowledge in that realm right. uh, to help us make the decision. Right. <laughs> yeah. And every data collection effort requires drawing some lines somewhere to determine what should uh, go in the data set and what should uh, be left out. One of the criticisms you all have gotten on this project is um, uh, among the things that are left out are things like death threats or harassment that people receive, um, uh, hate mail and the like uh, as a consequence of their um, public speaking. Um, is, is the decision to leave that out be, um, uh, primarily driven by a concern that um, uh, this is, this can't be known very well. And so you just don't have the information because it's it's mostly uh, below the radar or is the uh, or is the decision being driven by a calculation that this doesn't count as a call for sanction exactly. And so we should uh, distinguish this kind of harassment that people receive uh, from uh, calls for them to be fired by their employer. I think it's, it's probably actually a mix of both. Yeah, uh, it, it is. Um, it, we, we, we definitely find those things very concerning. I mean, yeah. it's indisputable that receiving multiple death threats and harassing emails and nasty phone calls is likely to have a chilling effect on you. Um, the AUP's data and, and survey on this shows that it does. Right. The, the professors that they surveyed who did receive threats were far more likely to change what they said on social media, how they taught, what even what they researched. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think we also don't want to equate that with the attempt to go after your job. They, mm -hmm. they, they seem just like different things. Right. Um, and and we we want to treat those threats like with the seriousness with which they deserve. Yeah. Um, I, and I think like you've hinted at it, it's they're harder to verify. Yeah. Um, we certainly don't think many people are lying, but we know of not of professors necessarily, but we know of people who have created hoaxes sure. around things like this. So it's it's just kind of um we think that that's it's something we're working on and it would be a separate database yeah. effectively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it would be like, you can easily toggle over to this one and look at it, but we would, we would keep those ultimately that that information would be separate. Um, if, if a threat was accompanied with like a petition, like we right. have examples of professors who were threatened and there was a formal call to fire them. I mean, they're in, they're in our database, certainly. Right, right, right. Um, and we are aware, we tracked, what was it called? We, we tracked somewhere around, I think it was about 60 cases that we had identified that there were these, these threats in and, and we felt pretty confident that they were. And we know that that's vastly undercounting it because mm -hmm. we just did the percentages on the AAUP data and in one year they had more. Mm -hmm. 
Right. Ours right. is over five. So we kind of, it's like, we don't even think we're doing a good job of adequately representing that with the way we collected our data. Yeah. So yeah. it's, it's, it wouldn't be right. I think to, to draw conclusions about that. Um, we, we did analysis on the cases we had, we, we, we do know a little bit about those, but um, you know, we, we just think it's a different phenomenon. Different phenomenon. Yeah. I don't know. I, if, homie, yeah. if you want to add anything, I don't know, but that's, that's, yeah, that's how we treat it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I, I definitely second everything Sean said. I think, you know, so much of what we rely on for this database is public and the nature of threats not only is like that involves private attacks on people, but it's also a very private experience to have. And it can be very difficult for some people, maybe the majority of people to want to bring to the public, you know, and then for one, a news story and sometimes not even like to their universities, to police. Um, it's something they just want to, they just, it might have just the effect of, not only chilling speech, but just kind of making right. one withdrawal overall. Right. right. And so you're not likely to publicize that you've been, you know, it's also you, it brings back really negative memories of the kind of things people sure. have said to you. Um, it's different from feeling indignant and, and wanting to, you know, feeling angry and wanting to retaliate. Wanting, it's more, you feel like you've been intruded upon, you've been violated. And, you know, so we're, and we're both trained as psychologists. So, you know, I, I think we have a hunch that the people that go, there might be something like different about people yeah. that go public with it because right. the, the professors that do go, they often, they, they detail the experience in, in a yeah. lot of detail. And they're, and they're like, they're, it's, it's, it's pitched as like a rallying cry to like, yeah. we need to pay attention to this. This is a serious problem. Look at what happened to me. And, and I know this has happened to other people. Yeah. And it's like, so they're comfortable doing that, but you know, from, the AAUP's data, we, we've spoken to the, the lead PI on that report, and, and he had developed a lot of rapport with, with some of the, the people they, they made outreach to, to serve right. him. He doesn't know who responded or not, but yeah. before they sent it out, they had to do a lot of outreach and build rapport. And, you know, effectively, he was told that a lot of these people, they, they don't want this stuff to be public because they don't want to relive yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's all it's all challenging to um, uh, get data on, unfortunately, and and to assess how big of a problem it, it is and and what the implications of the problem are. Um, uh, one thing that emerges in the database is that it winds up leaning heavily toward a fairly small number of disciplines. Um, uh, disciplines I had involvement with, as it turns out. Um, so a lot of a lot of law professors and political scientists uh, represented yeah. uh, among the uh, scholars who are being uh, targeted, um, and and often toward what y'all characterize as. Um, uh, per, their personal views and opinions on controversial social issues is what um, results in, in the targeting. Um, uh, can you say more about, or is there, is there something uh, usefully to be said about sort of the, the skew of, of how these things uh, play out and, and who's being targeted? Well, so in terms of the disciplines, um, I think one factor that contributes to why they're so heavily skewed in areas like law and history is that those are disciplines in which faculty are more likely to um, be targeted because they use the N word or they quoted the N word um, in a reading in you know something a, a work by James Baldwin for example uh, or in various other ways for educational purposes. I think that that's a kind of those are the fields where people where scholars um, try to. Um, you know, purposely make people uncomfortable or, or bring up difficult concepts. Um, so you'll see scholars in these fields 
administering exams that not only will maybe include the N-word, but will include some very um, offensive, very provocative images and have people, expect people to be able to respond to those in a somewhat objective way. And so that kind of goes against sort of modern sensitivities about, you know, being concerned about how people perceive very, um, you know, triggering stimuli. Right, right. I believe it's never less very important to expose that. I think another observation that that can apply to a number of those disciplines is, I guess it's a collection of observations, but uh, they are, you know, law, political science, history, uh, sociology. I mean, most of these fall under the social science camp. Mm -hmm. Uh, These disciplines are probably a more likely, as, as Comey's hinted at, but we, I think we just say with a broad umbrella, they're more likely to present controversial political material. They're more likely to discuss it in class. They're more likely to debate it. Um, there's also, I, I, as a social scientist, I, I'm well aware of this. There's, I think there's more subjectivity in those fields than other fields like mathematics mm-hmm, right. um, or, or, or engineering or things like that. Um, so... I think that creates part of part of it too. Is I mean, the, the discipline of law is to argue over these things. So I, I'm not surprised to see a lot of law professors on there. Like they're going to be presenting difficult material. They're going to want their students to go back and forth and debate. I mean, it's responsible for them to expose them to these different arguments because when you get out in the world and you're in the courtroom or you're writing briefs or whatever, you're going it, it probably behooves you to be aware a little bit of what the other side is likely to argue and say. Yeah, and, and social scientists overall, you know, they, they might be just more drawn than scholars in other fields um, to some contentious issues just that are personally intriguing to them. They might be drawn to the controversy and to the, you know, to that debate. And that might also um, contribute to maybe them having more controversial issues, being more outspoken on social media, you know, in their other domains outside of the university, just because these are issues that they care enough about to devote their careers to, they also probably care enough about to devote their time on social media to. Yeah, which goes into one. So one one bit of uh, uh, slightly good news, I guess, that I that I took out of the findings of the report is that a relatively small category um, of the speech that's being targeted here involves. Um, uh, uh, scholarship as such. It's, it's not so much people's um, formal scholarship that's generating a lot of these attacks. It's, it's other things they're doing, things they say in the classroom, things they say on social media, um, uh, op-eds that they write and other things that wind up spurring this attention. Um, do you think that's right as a way of characterizing the data set? That in fact, it's not very much being driven by, by uh, efforts to suppress uh, scholarship per se, um, uh, and should we actually take that as good news or is that just a limitation of the data set that we're not capturing uh, the kinds of threats that in fact are being provoked by things people are actually publishing in their scholarly outlets? So I, I think, um, I, I still find the figure of t- the, the, whatever the, our exact percentage is, I still right. think it's like too high. Yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> I, I do, it's I, only I, relative good news, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's um, a, I mean, yeah. it's, it is striking, oh, I, it's not I, zero. I, it's, a, it's a fairly large number still, but it's um, yeah. uh, but you know, much smaller than uh, things that are being generated by social but media, I, for example. Know, on <laughs> that though, I also think we might not have the best way of measuring the ideas that basically don't even attempt to be published or researched because they've decided to not pursue that course of action because of this kind of general climate um, that's that's swirling around. So I think, you know, we're 
we're limited because that's very hard to detect. Right. It's very hard to know that a, a, a faculty member or a research fellow or grad student was planning on doing X as a research project and then was like, oh, wait, that's really not a good idea before I have until I have tenure. Right. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even people who do conduct that research and they tend to get published, um, you know, there are many articles that are rejected by journals for a lot of different reasons. And it's often hard to determine you know, definitively the extent to which ideological reasons as opposed to other methodological issues or just the right of the journal to not publish certain things right. um, are involved. So that makes it even, it, that's just, it's tricky to know. Um, we don't have access to the papers that were reviewed and that would be another project entirely to look at whether there seems to be any kind of a systematic bias and what types of papers are rejected more frequently. Right. I mean, one of the nice things about the data set like this and, and the report is it, it does give us this sort of um, uh, broader perspective on, the, on a wide range of uh, attacks on, on faculty and um, uh, removes us from thinking about just uh, uh, individual cases. Um, and, and so we can learn a little bit then about things like who, who tends to launch these attacks, who's being targeted um, and the like. So um, uh, maybe we can start with um, who's, who's launching these attacks on faculty? What are, what are you seeing about who, who it is that's uh, um, raising these threats and demanding that universities uh, fire people? We, we do find overwhelmingly, approximately 50% of all the incidents have been um, you know, waged by, you know, started by um, students, undergraduate students. And, and groups, individuals and groups to the political left as a scholar. Um, but you know, if we if we look at like the different politics of different types of sanctioners, we do see that um, you know the groups on campus, the faculty and, and students and, and students being undergraduate and graduate students, they tend to be waging um, you know these attacks, these targetings from the left, and then people who are waging these targetings from the right tend to be. Um, you know, politicians, corporations, people outside of academia, the public. Mm. Um, and so the political dynamic is interesting that we do see more, the most number of incidents from people on the left and from undergraduates in, in particular. Um, but obviously there are you know, tons of under, undergraduates on campus, far more than there are faculty and, and um, you know, graduate students. And even though there are certainly more people in the public mm. than there are undergraduate students, um, there are fewer people in the public who are regularly exposed to faculty's expression than students are on campus. Yeah, I think both those findings, I mean, I think a, a real easy way of summing it up is when the attempts come from on campus, they likely come, they're likely coming from the left of the scholar. And when they come from off campus, they're likely coming from the right. There are, of course, exceptions to this. Uh, but that's a that's a broad pattern. We found that that same patterns in the disinvitation database as well, actually. Um, and I think, in terms of the on-campus phenomena, I mean, Comey hit nail on the head. I mean, just given the base rates, this is not surprising. I mean, there are students are tend to be identified more as liberal than moderate or conservative, and increasingly identifying as like very liberal. On, on a number, on, on our most recent survey, I think that's the mobile yeah. category, actually, when, if you run the counts. Um, you know, so it's, that makes sense to me. Faculty, same story in terms of our base rates. Um, it makes sense to me. And then how the off-campus actors go about it, it tends to be like state-level politicians. It could be national-level politicians calling for this. It, it, as Comey said, it could be CEOs. Uh, it could be off-campus organizations um, that have, 
you know, made it their mission to basically be watchdogs of, of right. the, you know, the, the indoctrination of the liberal left on campus and, and blah, blah, blah. Um, I think all those patterns, like they fit with what we kind of knew about similar phenomena, like the disinvitation database. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just all make sense when you consider the base rates of, of who actually is on campus. So I, I don't, I don't think it's like that surprising that it's like, right. find this like from the left thing. It's like, well, yeah, most of the people here are on the left. So like that's where it's going to come from. Yeah. And significantly <laughs> in like the uh, student uh, climate uh, survey we talked about earlier, and, and I think though that people sort of outside this fear of working in this area may not appreciate is, is this is a problem, both the left and the right um, mm-hmm. that uh, it's, 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 uh, I, I know you all have been nitpicked a little bit by critics of the report who say, well, it's, you're, you're, you're not capturing enough of the attacks on the left or, or, or enough of the attacks um, on the right. Um, but, but one thing that I find really striking about the report is just um, uh, it's a very large number on both ends of the spectrum. Yeah. And it's not as if um, the problem is really all centered on one side of the political aisle and, and uh, the problem's relatively minor uh, uh, on the other side. Yeah. And thing, uh, one thing we did notice in um, in exploring the data when we were when we were writing the report, I think is interesting is the tactics from the left and the right tend to be different. Mm. Like you're far more likely to see these like online petitions and demand lists uh, when the when the source of it is from the left. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the limited data we have on it, it mm-hmm. suggests that the the threats are more likely to come from the right. <laughs> you mean that the like death threats and hate yeah. kind of thing. Oh, yeah. I see. So right. Yeah. So the left yeah. organizes in form of petition. The right organizes in forms of hate mail. So, yeah. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, that one, you know, has the caveat, obviously, of we we know we massively undercounted the, the number sure. of threat events and, and right. there's probably a number out there. But I mean, that was a pretty clear pattern when we looked at the breakdown of the uh-huh. right. And, and that also did not necessarily surprise me. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I guess I'm not terribly surprised either. It seems consistent with uh, with my own experience, um, uh, both personally as to where my hate mail comes from, but also um, uh, more, more generally the sort of the, the uh, stuff you see um, uh, uh, across these across these range of cases more generally. Um, so I guess just to wrap up, let me ask, what do you think the database adds to our understanding of the challenges of free speech in, in the moment? As you say, in some ways, it reinforces some things we thought we already knew from other kinds of sources of data um, and, and other kinds of studies. Um, um, is, is this mostly um, uh, reinforcing uh, things that we thought we knew, but with uh, new and different data? Or, or do you think that we're um, also learning some things that um, are unexpected and surprising, uh, given, given sort of what we knew in the background? I think many people have in their minds a, a sort of caricature of who gets targeted, who gets sanctioned, who deserves to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think one thing that could help sort of um, disillusion people um, is if, if you go through the database, you look at all the incidents, you read the descriptions and all the details, um, pretty much anyone can find cases that they find abhorrent as well as cases that they actually find are completely reasonable where, where the person was doing something, saying something that um, you, know, you might agree with and, and have said yourself or might be afraid to say. And so um, that's kind of a humbling, I think, realization to have and to just see the myriad reasons why people are targeted. Um, you know, it's not just you know super right wing or super left wing people. It's people who 
um, have a lot of different intentions for engaging in a lot of different types of speech. And um, ideology is obviously not just political, um, you know, it spans a lot of other sort of social issues, social dynamics. And so um, just kind of realizing the breadth of this, this phenomenon, I think is really eye-opening. Um, so hopefully people find it to be just a really interesting resource and um, a humbling one to, to be able to relate to some of the people and be sympathetic to, to them and to their um, intentions. And also, you know, to recognize that there are people that the vast majority of viewers would think, wow, like that person said some pretty heinous things, but the principle of free speech and often academic freedom too, is that, you know, they were expressing a view that not only are they legally protected to express, but that, you know, ha has the potential to open up an important dialogue. And even if they didn't say what they said with a level of grace and consideration that maybe one should, um, you know, their, their perspective was put out there into the world and represents a view that a certain number of people, oftentimes many people hold, and it's important for that view to be out there, to be understood, to be dissected. Yeah, and I'll, I'll just add, uh, you know, I think what, what one thing, an important thing that the, the database accomplishes is it gives, um, it gives a voice, I think, to, there's, I think all three of us know from talking to colleagues and, and working in academic settings that this is a, a real thing that, that there's a number of faculty and scholars and graduate students who will say to you privately that they, I can't research that, or I, I have to, I, I can't say this, I, I'm afraid of saying this, whatever. Um, and it's like, it's up until now there's some numbers. Yeah. So now yeah. it's not just anecdotal stories. Now there's some numbers behind it. Um, and like we said, if, if, if our hunch is correct, then it's more the tip of the iceberg than, yeah. than close to representing the full universe. I, I think it's, it's easier to persuade some people, people who might be fence sitters on the issue. It's like, look at this, there is a problem here. And, and we need to be aware of this now and not get, let this try not to let this get worse. Right. Um, I would love to not update this database monthly. Like, <laughs> you know, Homie mentioned at the beginning, it's like, we plan to update it every month. It's like, well, yeah, but I'd love there to be a month where it's like, oh, nothing happened and we don't have to issue an update. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. That'd be nice. Hopefully we'll get to that moment <laughs> when a month will go by and you'll say, oh, you know, I don't need to bother. I can, I can update this on an annual basis rather than a monthly basis. And hopefully you don't have to move the needle and say, I need to update this on a weekly basis because yeah. otherwise it won't be able to keep up. No, I, um, I think, well, I think we decided it's like, we could in theory probably update it weekly. And we were like, that's just too much. It's, right. it's like too involved that makes our web designer have to do too much. Like, <laughs> we'll do it once a month. <laughs> right, yeah, fair enough. Um, and one thing I really appreciate about um, uh, FIRE's work in general, and including these reports and databases is y'all are extraordinarily transparent about the databases. All the data is uh, right there on the website. Uh, people should feel free to go uh, take a look at it. They can uh, tinker with the coding if they would like <laughs> to, 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 if they're not happy with how y'all coded some of the things, but it's, um, uh, it's, it's a nice resource for anyone interested in this issue. And we certainly encourage people to do that. That's like, like you said, it's a transparency thing. It's the, there's subjective judgment calls in there. Someone else might've made a different call. You're free to download the data. And I mean, it's time consuming, trust me. Uh, but if you want to, I'd love to, like we, we welcome that. We, we'd love to see stuff like that happen. So, right, right. <laughs>
Yeah, we want we want our information to be accurate and thorough. And also, so if people have a, additional information surrounding incidents, if they believe that we have coded something incorrectly because of new information that we don't have access to, like we want that information, and it's not, you know, it's something that we welcome and and will act on um, accordingly. Great. So um, thank you for joining us. Um, uh, listeners can find out more about FIRE, including uh, these reports um, at their website, uh, which is www.thefire.org. Um, please subscribe to the Academic Freedom Podcast through your favorite platform uh, so that you don't miss an episode and rate us on iTunes, which will help others find our conversations on campus free speech and academic uh, freedom. Until next time, thank you for joining us. Thanks for joining us on the Academic Freedom Podcast. This has been a production of the Academic Freedom Alliance, or the AFA. We are a coalition of hundreds of faculty from a range of backgrounds and ideologies who are committed to defending the free speech rights of professors at colleges and universities. You can learn more about our organization at our website, academicfreedom.org. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope you'll join us next time on the Academic Freedom Podcast.